Chapter One of Harrington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jenny Bradshaw. Harrington by Maria Edgeworth. Chapter One. When I was a little boy of about six years old, I was standing with a maidservant in the balcony of one of the upper rooms of my father's house in London. It was the evening of the first day that I had ever been in London, and my senses had been excited and almost exhausted by the vast variety of objects that were new to me. It was dusk, and I was growing sleepy, but my attention was awakened by a fresh wonder. As I stood peeping between the bars of the balcony, I saw star after star of light appear in quick succession, at a certain height and distance, and in a regular line, approaching nearer and nearer. I twitched the skirt of my maid's gown repeatedly, but she was talking to some acquaintance at the window of a neighbouring house, and she did not attend to me. I pressed my forehead more closely against the bars of the balcony, and strained my eyes more eagerly towards the object of my curiosity. Presently the figure of the lamplighter, with his blazing torch in one hand and his ladder in the other, became visible, and with as much delight as philosopher ever enjoyed in discovering the cause of a new and grand phenomenon, I watched his operations. I saw him fix and mount his ladder with his little black pot swinging from his arm and his red smoking torch waving with astonishing velocity as he ran up and down the ladder. Just when he reached the ground, being then within a few yards of our house, his torch flared on the face and figure of an old man, with a long white beard and a dark visage, who, holding a great bag slung over one shoulder, walked slowly on, repeating in a low, abrupt, mysterious tone the cry of, "'Old clothes! Old clothes! Old clothes!' I could not understand the words he said, but as he looked up at our balcony he saw me, and smiled, and I remember thinking that he had a good-natured countenance." The maid nodded to him. He stood still, and at the same instant she seized upon me, exclaiming, "'Time for you to come off to bed, Master Harrington!' I resisted, and clinging to the rails, began kicking and roaring. "'If you don't come quietly this minute, Master Harrington,' said she, "'I'll call to Simon the Jew there,' pointing to him, "'and he shall come up and carry you away in his great bag.' The old man's eyes were upon me, and to my fancy the look of his eyes and his whole face had changed in an instant. I was struck with terror, my hands let go their grasp, and I suffered myself to be carried off as quietly as my maid could desire. She hurried and huddled me into bed, bid me go to sleep, and ran downstairs. To sleep I could not go, but full of fear and curiosity I lay, pondering on the thoughts of Simon the Jew and his bag, who had come to carry me away in the heights of my joys. His face, with the light of the torch upon it, appeared and vanished and flitted before my eyes. The next morning, when daylight and courage returned, I asked my maid whether Simon the Jew was a good or a bad man. Observing the impression that had been made upon my mind, and foreseeing that the expedient which she had thus found successful might be advantageously repeated, she answered with oracular duplicity, "'Simon the Jew is a good man for naughty boys!' The threat of Simon the Jew was for some time afterwards used upon every occasion to reduce me to passive obedience, and when by frequent repetition this threat had lost somewhat of its power, she proceeded to tell me, in a mysterious tone, stories of Jews who had been known to steal poor children for the purposes of killing, crucifying, and sacrificing them at their secret feasts and midnight abominations. The less I understood, 
the more I believed. Above all, there was one story, horrible, most horrible, which she used to tell at midnight, about a Jew who lived in Paris in a dark alley, and who professed to sell pork-pies. But it was found out at last that the pies were not pork. They were made of the flesh of little children. His wife used to stand at the door of her den, to watch for little children, and as they were passing would tempt them with cakes and sweetmeats. There was a trap-door in the cellar, and children were dragged down, and, oh, how my blood ran cold when we came to the terrible trap-door! Were there, I asked, such things in London now? Oh, yes, in dark, narrow lanes there were Jews now living, and watching always for such little children as me. I should take care they did not catch me whenever I was walking in the streets. And Fowler, that was my maid's name, added, there was no knowing what they might do with me. In our enlightened days, and in the present improved state of education, it may appear incredible that any nursery-maid could be so wicked as to relate, or any child of six years old so foolish as to credit such tales. But I am speaking of what happened many years ago. Nursery-maids and children, I believe, are very different now from what they were then. And in further proof of the progress of human knowledge and reason, we may recollect that many of these very stories of the Jews, which we now hold too preposterous for the infant and the nursery-maid to credit, were some centuries ago universally believed by the English nation, and had furnished more than one of our kings with pretexts for extortion and massacres. But to proceed with my story, the impression made on my imagination by these horrible tales was greater than my nursery-maid intended. Charmed by the effect she had produced, she was next afraid that I would bring her into disgrace with my mother, and she extorted from me a solemn promise that I would never tell anybody the secret she had communicated. From that moment I became her slave and her victim. I shudder when I look back to all I suffered during the eighteen months I was under her tyranny. Every night, the moment she and the candle left the room, I lay in an indescribable agony of terror my head under the bedclothes, my knees drawn up, in a cold perspiration. I saw faces around me grinning, glaring, receding, advancing, all turning at last into the same face of the Jew with the long beard and the terrible eyes, and that bag in which I fancied were mangled limbs of children. It opened to receive me, or fell upon my bed, and lay heavy on my breast so that I could neither stir nor scream. In short, it was one continued nightmare." There was no refreshing sleep for me till the hour when the candle returned, and my tyrant, my protectress, as I thought her, came to bed. In due course she suffered in her turn. For I could not long endure this state, and, instead of submitting passively or lying speechless with terror, the moment she left the room at night I began to roar and scream till I brought my mother and half the house up to my bedside. What could be the matter with the child? Faithful to my promise, I never betrayed the secrets of my prison-house. Nothing could be learned from me but that I was frightened, that I could not go to sleep. And this, indeed, my trembling condition and convulsed countenance sufficiently proved. My mother, who was passionately fond of me, became alarmed for my health, and ordered that Fowler should stay in the room with me every night till I should be quite fast asleep. So Fowler sat beside my bed every night, singing, caressing, cajoling, hushing, conjuring me to sleep. And when, in about an hour's time, she flattered herself that her conjurations had succeeded, when my relaxing muscles gave her hope that she might withdraw her arm unperceived, and when slowly and dexterously she had accomplished this, and, watching my eyelashes and cautiously shading the candle with her hand, she had happily gained the door, some slipping of the lock, 
some creaking of the hinge some parting sound startled me and bounce i was upright in my bed my eyes wide open and my voice ready for a roar so she was compelled instantly to return to replace the candle full in my view to sit down close beside the bed and with her arm once more thrown over me she was forced again to repeat that the jew's bag could not come there and cursing me in her heart she recommenced her deceitful songs she was seldom released in less than two hours in vain she now tried by day to chase away the terrors of the night to undo her own work was beyond her power in vain she confessed that her threats were only to frighten me into being a good boy in vain she told me that i was too old now to believe such nonsense in vain she told me that simon was only an old clothes man that his cry was only old clothes old clothes which she mimicked to take off its terror its terror was in that power of association which was beyond her skill to dissolve in vain she explained to me that his bag held only my old shoes and her yellow petticoat in vain she now offered to let me see with my own eyes my imagination was by this time proof against ocular demonstration one morning early she took me downstairs into the housekeeper's room where simon and his bag were admitted she emptied the bag in my presence she laughed at my foolish fears and i pretended to laugh but my laugh was hysterical no power could draw me within arm's length of the bag or the jew he smiled and smoothed his features and stroked his white beard and stooping low stretched out his inoffensive hand to me my maid placed sugared almonds on the palm of that hand and bid me approach and eat no i stood fixed and if the jew approached i ran back and hid my head in fowler's lap if she attempted to pull or push me forwards i screamed and at length i sent forth a scream that wakened my mother her bell rang and she was told that it was only master harrington who was afraid of poor simon the old clothes man summoned to the side of my mother's bed i appeared nearly in hysterics but still faithful to my promise i did not betray my maid nothing could be learned from me but that i could not bear the sight of old simon the jew my mother blamed fowler for taking me down to see such a sort of person the equivocating maid replied that master harrington could not or would not be aisy unless she did and that indeed now it was impossible to know how to make him aisy by day or by night that she lost her natural rest with him and that for her part she could not pretend to stand it much longer unless she got her natural rest heaven knows my natural rest was gone but besides she could not even get her cup of tea in an evening or stir out for a mouthful of fresh air now she was every night to sing master harrington to sleep it was but poetical justice that she who had begun by terrifying me in order to get me to bed and out of her way should end by being forced to suffer some restraint to cure me of my terrors but fowler did not understand or relish poetical justice or any kind of justice besides she had heard that lady de brantefield was in want of a nursery-maid for the little lady anne mowbray who was some years younger than master harrington and fowler humbly represented to my mother that she thought master harrington was really growing too stout and too much of a man and she confessed quite above and beyond her management and comprehension for she never pretended to anything but the care of young children that had not arrived at the years of discretion this she understood to be the case with the little lady anne mowbray therefore a recommendation to lady de brantefield would be very desirable and she hoped but justice to her the very desirable recommendation was given by my mother to lady de brantefield who was her particular friend nor was my mother in the least to blame on this occasion for she truly thought she was doing nothing but justice 
had it been otherwise those who know how these things are usually managed would i trust never think of blaming my mother for a sort of thing which they would do and doubtless have done themselves without scruple for a favourite maid who is always a faithful creature so fowler departed happy but i remained unhappy not with her departed my fears after she was gone i made a sort of compromise with my conscience and without absolutely breaking my promise i made a half-confession to my mother that i had somehow or other horrid notions about jews and it was the terror i had conceived of simon the jew which prevented me from sleeping at night my mother felt for me and considered my case as no laughing matter my mother was a woman of weak health delicate nerves and a kind of morbid sensibility which i often heard her deplore as a misfortune but which I observed everybody about her admire as a grace. She lamented that her dear Harrington, her only son, should so much resemble her in this exquisite sensibility of the nervous system. But her physician, and he was a man who certainly knew better than she did, she confessed, for he was a man who really knew everything, assured her that this was indisputably the genuine temperament of genius. I soon grew vain of my fears. My antipathy, my natural, positively natural antipathy to the sight or bare idea of a Jew, was talked of by ladies and by gentlemen. It was exhibited to all my mother's acquaintance, learned and unlearned. It was a medical, it was a metaphysical wonder, it was an idiosyncrasy, corporeal or mental, or both. It was, in short, more nonsense was talked about it than I will repeat, though I perfectly remember it all for the importance of which at this period i became to successive circles of visitors fixed every circumstance and almost every word indelibly in my memory it was a pity i was not born some years earlier or later for i should have flourished as a favourite pupil of mesmer the animal magnetizer or i might at this day be a celebrated somnambulist no to do myself justice i really had no intention to deceive at least originally but as it often happens with those who begin by being dupes I was in imminent danger of becoming a knave. How I escaped it I do not well know. For here, a child, scarce seven years old, I saw myself surrounded by grown-up wise people, who were accounting different ways for that, of which I alone knew the real, secret, simple cause. They were all, without my intending it, my dupes. Yet when I felt that I had them in my power, I did not deceive them much, not much more than I deceived myself. I never was guilty of deliberate imposture. I went no farther than affectation and exaggeration, which it was in such circumstances scarcely possible for me to avoid, for I really often did not know the difference between my own feelings and the descriptions I heard given of what I felt. Fortunately, for my integrity, my understanding, and my health, people began to grow tired of seeing and talking of Master Harrington. Some new wonder came into fashion. I think it was Jedediah Buxton, the man of prodigious memory, who could multiply in his head nine figures by nine, and who, the first time he was taken to the playhouse, counted all the steps of the dances and all the words uttered by Garrick in Richard the Third. After Jedediah Buxton, or about the same time, if I recollect rightly, came George Salmanazar from his island of Formosa, who, with his pretended dictionary of the Pomosan language, and the pounds of raw beef he devoured per day excited the admiration and engrossed the attention of the royal society and of every curious and fashionable company in london so that poor little i was forgotten as though i had never been my mother and myself were left to settle the affair with my nerves and the jews as we could between the effects of real fear and the exaggerated expression of it to which i had been encouraged i was now seriously ill 
it is well known that persons who have brought on fits by pretending to have them and by yielding to feelings at first slight and perfectly within the command of the will have at last acquired habits beyond the power of their reason or of their most strenuous voluntary exertion to control such was my pitiable case and at the moment i was most to be pitied nobody pitied me even my mother now she had nobody to talk to about me grew tired of my illness she was advised by her physician on account of her own health by no means to keep so close to the house as she had done of late she went out therefore every night to refresh herself at crowded parties and as soon as she left the house the nurse and everybody in the family left me the servant settled it in my hearing that there was nothing in life the matter with me that my mother and i were equally vaporsomish and timersome and that there was no use in nursing and pampering me up in them fantastical fancifulnesses so the nurse and lady's maid and housekeeper went down altogether to their tea and the housemaid who was ordered by the housekeeper to stay with me soon followed charging the under housemaid to supply her place who went off also in her turn leaving me in charge of the cook's daughter a child of nine years old who soon stole out of the room and scampered away along the gallery out of the reach of my voice leaving the room to darkness and to me and there i lay in all the horrors of a low nervous fever unpitied and alone shall i be pardoned for having dwelt so long on this history of the mental and corporeal ills of my childhood such details will probably appear more trivial to the frivolous and ignorant than to the philosophic and well-informed not only because the best informed are usually the most indulgent judges but because they will perceive some connection between these apparently puerile details and subjects of higher importance bacon and one who in later days has successfully followed him on this ground point out as one of the most important subjects of human inquiry equally necessary to the science of morals and of medicine the history of the power and influence of the imagination not only upon the mind and body of the imaginant but upon those of other people this history so much desired and so necessary has been but little advanced one reason for this may be that both by the learned and the unlearned it is usually begun at the wrong end Bellier, mon ami, commence parler, commencement, is excellent advice, equally applicable to philosophical history and to fairy tale. We must be content to begin at the beginning, if we would learn the history of our own minds. We must condescend to be even as little children, if we would discover or recollect those small causes which early influence the imagination, and afterwards become strong habits, prejudices, and passions in this point of view if they might possibly tend to turn public attention in a new direction to an important subject my puerile anecdotes may be permitted these my experiments solitary and in concert touching fear and of and concerning sympathies and antipathies are perhaps as well worth noting for future use as some of those by which sir kenelm digby and others astonished their own generation and which they bequeathed to ungrateful posterity End of chapter one. Recording by Jenny Bradshaw